You've turned on Sexy Marriage Radio, where the best sex is happening in the marriage bed. This episode is brought to you by CovenantSpice.com, the fun, safe, and affordable way for Christian couples to take their sex life to the next level. Here are your hosts, Dr. Corey Allen and Shannon Efridge. Now, you know, one of the things we love is hearing from our sexy listeners that we have at Sexy Marriage Radio. And the way that you can be one of the ones that are heard, you can send us an email at feedback at sexymarriageradio.com. You can also jump on iTunes and leave a review and a comment. And that helps everybody hear what you have to say and what you think. But Shannon, we got one last week that was great. In regards, I know which one you're. I know which one you're going to share. I loved it. In regards to our episode 133 on the conversations of how kinky is too kinky, and so the preface of this email is that uh, the husband emailed us and was talking about his wife's aware that, he, that he's a weekly listener of Sexy Marriage Radio, and they even listen to episodes together. So he showed her the email of the topic how kinky is too kinky, and that Covenant Spice is a sponsor of ours. And he showed her the site, and she pointed to a vibrator on CovenantSpice.com and said, that, that is too kinky. So he took a step back, and I'm not quite sure what to do with this, but he said, and in my very best Corey voice, I said. I knew that that would be a huge ego stroke But to why you, do you feel that way? Corey voice. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, I, I didn't realize I have a Corey voice. I mean, I understand I have my voice, but it's just. <laughs> and so then that just led to some conversations about. You know, what What does that mean and ha- how it goes further and just some great discussions unfolded, it sounds like. And, man, I love that. And, and I love the fact that he asked just the simple question, why? Right. Why is that too kinky? Right. I, I can imagine that that really gave her pause and she probably didn't know how to answer. Now, granted, some people, it, it doesn't have to be any other reason besides it's just against my personal conscience. I totally celebrate that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's not necessarily a matter of personal conscience. It's a matter of social taboos or stigmas or religious legalism or whatever. Just asking yourself right. why right. is a great question in regards to all things sexual that have given you pause in the past. And, and I guess I have to come to grips with it's okay that people are going to use in their very best Corey voice. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say, don't use it in the actual act of sex. Come on, just that—that's—that's that's mine. Keep that in other areas, and then use your voice in in the actual act. I mean, I—I I, I think that's a helpful hint for everybody, isn't it? Admit it, though, Corey. It was just a little bit of an oh, ego boost. Okay, I, I will admit that. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Hey, I am so excited about a guest that we have on the show today. Yes. I met Dr. Bill Struthers about a year ago. We were both speaking at the International Association of Christian Sex Addiction Specialists. Say that 10 times fast. No. In in short, the (laughs) IACSAS conference. And I had spoken on several sessions and was on my way out the door Saturday morning. I had to get back on an airplane And Dr. Struthers was scheduled to speak that morning. He had just flown in. And one of my pet peeves is that I never like to rush trying to get through an airport. I always want to just stroll through casually, get through security without any stress or any of that. But this particular morning, I was glued to my seat and I was staring at my watch thinking, 
Okay, I can I can be just a little bit later. Okay, I, I have flat <laughs> shoes on, so I'll be able to sprint through the airport like O.J. Simpson. I, I just kept telling myself just a few minutes more because I was hanging on every word that this guy was sharing with this audience. And I'm really glad that I didn't know in advance just how smart he actually is, or else I might have felt too intimidated. I didn't learn until afterwards what all of his credentials were, but I was amazed at how, I don't want to say he dumbed it down to us lay folks, but he certainly didn't speak over our heads. But he has a PhD in biopsychology. I can only imagine how long and how much effort that took just to land that. <laughs> He's been published in a number of journals. He's a researcher at Wheaton College. He speaks internationally as an advocate against sexual exploitation. He, so he looks at, I was going to say he looks at pornography, prostitution, yeah, trafficking. Careful how we phrase that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not accurate. <laughs> he looks at the impacts on society Perfect. of pornography, prostitution, human trafficking. And he's written a book called Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks the Male Brain. And I know that we've had several listeners check in with us to say, hey, we hear you speak against pornography, but you don't really explain too much about why. Well, I'm hoping that Dr. Struthers is going to unpack uh, the why much better than we ever could. So Dr. Struthers, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for carving out time from your writing sabbatical to join us today. Oh, thanks, Shannon. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. You bet. So talk to us about brain sex. <laughs> Some people may have heard that expression before, but I would say that to most of our listeners, that's probably a new thing. When they think about sex, the brain is not the part of the anatomy that they envision. Yeah, most of the time when people think about sex, they sort of go down between the ears uh, or, you know, or they go down between the legs, but I actually think about it between the ears. Uh, so much of the way that we think about sexuality is overly focused on the genitals as sort of a, you know, it's the reproductive part of our bodies. But I think as just kind of human beings, it's much more interesting to look at the psychological experience of sexuality. You know, in the intro, you mentioned about taboos and, you know, things being kinky and that sort of thing. And, and all that happens up in the brain. So I've spent a good amount of time in my graduate training and now as a, as a professor at Wheaton College, really thinking about, you know, how do we understand what gets us sexually aroused, how we respond, how do we control our sexual urges. And so brain sex for me has kind of become the, the language that I like to use to help people understand that. And so what, talk to us about this sexual mosaic brain. What, what, what does that sure. look like? Yeah, I think oftentimes people kind of resort to a men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of way of thinking about, uh, about the brain and about sexuality as if, you know, men have some kind of weird morphological penis-shaped brain and women have some, you know, <laughs> vagina-shaped brain. And that's just, that's just kind of silly at one level. Uh, or but, but, or a, stop shine, a stop sign shaped brain. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, you can go on the Internet and find all kinds of fun, you know, pictures of brains with, you know, chunks that are devoted to different things. And, you know, there's the stereotype one where, you know, men has got this large portion devoted to sex and another one for beer and another one for, you know, football. And women have a big section for shoes and, and for, you know, talking Stop and me. gossiping. And, and you're just like, OK, that, that's that's kind of funny at one level. But also I think that. Uh, you know, to, to step back and as, as someone who studies neuroanatomy and, and the neural circuits to kind of look at, well, you know, there are parts of the brain that are specifically sort of built in such a way 
to really enhance male sexual behavior or female sexual behavior or being oriented towards male cues or oriented towards female cues. And, and that's a real popular you know, thing nowadays, especially when we think about people um, in, in the discussion with the LGBTQ community. So we have, you know, we have men being attracted to men. We have women being attracted to women. We have women being attracted to both men and women. We have bisexuality. So, so the sexual mosaic brain is the way that I'd like to uh, refer to how these different parts of the brains have different responsibilities in our psychological experience as well as our sexual experience too. So, for example, the the the, the circuits in your brain that are responsible for, uh, you know, becoming sexually aroused may be turned on and you may find yourself sort of aroused or, or turned on by someone, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you go immediately over and engage in these sexual behaviors. Uh, but of course, arousal right. sort of feeds into behavior. So thinking about how these different parts of the brain play themselves out, one of the things that I think is really interesting is looking at during development how hormones and how genes influence these different parts of the brain and how the culture also says, well, you know, these things are masculine and these things are feminine. Uh, but really, if you step back, what you find is that, you know, there's a lot of women who have what we would call sort of masculine style neurology. They have masculine style interpersonal uh, ways of going about the, the, the way they talk, the way they compete. And you have men sometimes who will uh, show kind of this this crossing where they're they're very masculine and heterosexual in their orientation and their arousal, but perhaps their drive is really low. Uh, which sometimes you know the culture will say, well, low sexual drive that's a feminine thing, um, or they may find themselves you know very very much into the kinds of uh, you know romance novels or something like that. Uh, so so, so thinking you're about that the how stereotypes don't really work. They don't, and that's the that's the problem is that no you know. It's not like we run this world with kind of two caricatures, one the hyper-masculine man and one the hyper-feminine woman. Uh, you know, each person kind of has their own, uh, you know, idiosyncratic styles. And cultures tell us what those styles are. Like they say, oh, that's masculine or oh, that's feminine. And I'm just thinking real recently of, for example, if you've been paying attention to the Ban Bossy campaign. Right, that you know, young girls who sort of are assertive, well, they're called bossy, whereas boys who are assertive, they're called leaders. And well, well, how do we make how do we make sense of that? So a lot of the, the that kind of mosaic is well, maybe there more, are more assertive men out there, but just because you're an assertive girl doesn't mean that you're any less uh, you know less of a woman because of that. And, so the brain and mosaic the less, the less valuable to society. We need strong women. Exactly. And, and so I, I be followers. I think so. I, and I think using the brain mosaic language is a little bit easier because when you look at the, uh, you know, when you look at the genitals, you've kind of got you know, the male and the female genitals. But when you look at sort of psychological predispositions, the way we process information, the way that we feel the world, the way that we see and experience relationships, uh, there, there's this myriad mosaic of, of patterns that individuals can can play out as. And so so that's why I, I prefer the brain mosaic language rather than the brain sex language. Okay, so basically you're saying that we have a conglomeration of different sections of the brain and they all function differently in, in different individuals. That there's no male brain and this is how it works and there's no female brain and this is how it works. There's There's a wide variety between the two. I think so, but I think there's there's also the reality that our sexuality really is infused in all of our body. 
it's, you know, thinking about, you know, almost every cell in our body knows our genetic sex. Uh, the hormones that are made during development, you know, change our bodies as we move through puberty. I mean, you want women to have different structured pelvic bones than you want men to have because women have to pass a baby through the birth canal. And so you'll see that there are these differences where, you know, even other organs of the body, you know, the heart muscle, the lung capacity, they have these kind of these differences between men and women. They're not as huge sometimes as people think, but you can move that into the brain too and say, well, you know, there's, there's influences that, you know, that hormones can have on the way that brains develop. There's the influence because the brain's a plastic organ. It responds to the environment that we can sort of be trained into something. So let's say that if, uh, if you know, boys are naturally competitive, uh, we can, as a culture, value them to be uh, maybe a little bit less competitive, maybe a little more compassionate, which is, which is difficult when you've got a lot of testosterone in your body. But also recognizing that, you know, with, with women, that perhaps we can train, we could raise them up as sort of Amazonian competitors, right? But we don't have the advantage that testosterone would have in a male, but you can still have women being very aggressive and very uh, competitive, even in the absence of that hormone. And so help us understand the implications that all this has on sexuality and relationships for the, yeah. for the folks who are listening and they're married and they're trying to figure out how to have a healthier sex life. And sometimes they don't understand why they aren't on the same page and can't seem to speak the same language about their desires and their needs. Mm -hmm. What impact does all this information have on them? Well, I think in many ways this gets exactly to that point that, you know, the male brain should, in some areas should be a little different than the female brain. The female brain in some areas should be a little different from the male brain. And these mosaic regions that are involved in, you know, uh, sexual bonding, that are involved in uh, parenting, that are involved in, you know, raising a child, uh, the, you want to have a little bit of, of difference here. So in some ways we are speaking different languages. It's not, you know, mass, it's not like, you know, you're one speaking Swahili and the other speaking Morse code or something like that. Uh, but I think the, the advantage is that, look, there, there are some things that when you look in nature, when you look in, you know, mammals, uh, you know, dogs, cats, uh, I do a lot of research with rats. Uh, th there are some circuits that are built in there that are designed for the male to procreate. And if he, if he doesn't have those circuits intact or those circuits aren't functioning, then he's not going to mate. He's not going to engage in, you know, sort of intercourse. And the same thing goes with the female, that the female's got a set of circuits and a, and a hormonal milieu that she's, you know, cycling through estrogen and progesterone. And if she's in the wrong time of her cycle, well, she can't uh, reproduce. So you see an awful lot of commonality between human beings and primates and other mammals, but humans are really different when compared even to our, our closest primate uh, cousins because humans have sex for lots of different reasons. Now, higher, some higher primates do for social reasons, but for, for humans, there's an incredible web of reasons why people will engage in, in sexual behavior. So, uh, so when we, we kind of get an appreciation for what are some of the reasons why men will? What are some of the reasons why women will? We do see a lot of commonality, but we do see sometimes that because of the brain organization and the way that the brain has been trained and, and enculturated in thinking about sex and its personal history and how it's used sex in the past, 
to sometimes to medicate, sometimes to try to have a baby, sometimes to exert power. Um, what you find is that you've got this incredibly complex dynamic. And when you can explore that, and, and I find the neuro stuff kind of a good stepping point, uh, it really begins to cause people to try to listen to what those who maybe haven't had their experience are saying. So what comes to my mind, and then Corey, I want to pick your brain just a little bit. What comes to my mind is that you know, when you compare humans and animals, surely, I mean, animals aren't. They're not raised in a society where they're told things like so many women are told. Good girls don't. And keep your panties on and your legs crossed. You know, all these messages. And so I would imagine that there is so much more freedom in the animal world to just, if it feels good, do it. I think the primary reason they do it is for pleasure. And that's probably... Is that about the extent of it? Is it just a pleasurable act, or are there other reasons that that mammals do it? Well, I, you know that, that's an, that's a really interesting question because I'm not entirely convinced that animals mate for the purpose of having offspring. Uh, you know, I, I don't I think, think that's you just know an out, out just a natural. Yeah, I, I think that it's just you know the 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 reality of look you know this is this is. Uh, you know, they're, they're motivated, and when they're motivated and they engage in the behaviors uh, and they're aroused, then there's a pleasurable experience. And sometime down the road, sometimes they get pregnant and, uh, and they have the offspring, and sometimes they don't. So I think it's really, I would want to say that the animals will, will mate more out of the kind of near-term desire for pleasure that comes from the act, rather than sort of the, I don't think, you know, John and Jane Rat are thinking, hey, we need to have a litter of rat pups. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, the, the psychological experience of the animals is a little bit different. Whereas when you, uh, when you look at kind of human beings, I mean, human beings will have sex for a lot of different reasons. Uh, they'll have sex to get money uh, to pay for uh, X, Y, and Z so people will prostitute themselves. Um, or they will engage in sort of, you know, one of these mutual, mutually beneficial relationships, right? To get some older, uh, old, some women will get older men to pay for their college educations. And, you know, and men will engage in sex with, with, uh, with one another sometimes. There are male prostitutes who are heterosexual who will have sex with men in order to, for example, uh, get, their, get their drug money to help for their addictions that they may have. So I think there's a lot of different reasons why people will have sex other than just the pleasure. Obviously, husbands and wives can say, look, we want to have a baby, so we're going to try to have a baby. And, uh, and that sex kind of has a different feel to it than, you know, the, just two people just wanting to kind of, you know, enjoy each other's, uh, you know, sexual intimacy. So I think that with human beings, in some ways we are kind of, I mean, we are animals, but I think we have much more expansive reason for why we'll engage in sex too. So that's talking, that's ab- was- that's talking about the meaning capacity that our brain has, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, understa- you know, we also have a capacity to engage uh, in sex in a way that exceeds what a lot of animals do. I mean, some animals just physically can't engage, many females can't physically engage in the sexual act unless they're in the right time of their hormonal cycle or in the right you know, time of the season, so to speak, when all the hormones are, are ready. Kind of, I, I like to use the example of Bambi. You know, springtime, hey, everybody's kind of excited and we're mating now. Uh, so I think some animals are sort of circadian um, and some animals are uh, circannual. Some go every four days, some every four weeks. So it varies from species to species. And that's probably true in marriage too. Sometimes every four days, sometimes every four weeks. <laughs> I, I, I'm just thinking that yes, with human beings, there are lots and lots of reasons that we can have sex and enjoy sex with one another. But there's also a lot of roadblocks that yeah, that are exclusive to human beings. And so, 
how does your research kind of help explain some of these mental roadblocks and and how how can we overcome those especially i'm just thinking of of women and how we're just not wired like men we're not wired to want sex every day multiple times a day and and so how can a woman a be more compassionate toward her husband who does have all this testosterone testosterone flowing who is wanting the sexual connection far more frequently than she does and then also how can he be more compassionate and understand that she's just not a living breathing sex machine like he feels like he might be during this season of his life yeah, see that, you know, and I kind of want to push back a little bit on that because I think so much of the way that we think about sexuality now is heavily influenced by two factors. One is what is kind of what we've been sort of dancing around here a little bit, and that's the sort of evolutionary mating strategy arguments. That men, because of the, you know, the fact that they make sperm and they don't have to carry the offspring, are going to want to basically have sex with as many females as they possibly can. And so what we've done is we've said, well, you know, when we look in nature, that, that kind of makes sense. But when you look at human beings, boy, I don't, I don't know that we want to use just evolutionary mating strategies as the sole sort of, uh, you know, element in the recipe, you know, the sole ingredient in the recipe when it comes to, you know, why men want to have sex. Uh, and, and the same way with women, you know, females sort of have to be choosy because it's very costly for them to uh, sort of make the ovum and then to be pregnant. And so we've, we've kind of allowed the mating strategy language to come into the way that we think about our sexuality. And we're going to find that some men just are not about, you know, having as many babies as they can with as many females as will have them. Uh, you, you actually don't see that. You go back a couple hundred years you know, men are just, men are informed by the culture and they would say, we're supposed to be noble. We're supposed to be very upright and we don't do those kinds of things. So the, the narrative that the culture gives us sort of acts on, you know, acts on us psychologically, acts on the brain. And so we have these expectations that men are going to be this way. And so for men who find that they're really not that interested in sex, they'll sort of think, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. Or, for, or on the other side, for women, you know, women who are interested in sex, say, well, is there something wrong with me? I mean, aren't I supposed to be, you know, someone who's very choosy and kind of the gatekeeper of sexuality and shouldn't I be sort of abiding by all of these taboos? And so I think that the, the first thing is that, you know, we really need to stop and think about the way that this evolutionary mating strategy narrative causes us to think about our sexuality. And so that's the, the, the first thing. Uh, the second thing I think also is the manner in which the culture is sexualized. I mean, you have a lot of men who are, uh, you know, in a very hyper-sexualized culture, so they're aroused regularly. And let's face it, a lot of them feed that addiction as well by fantasizing through viewing pornography regularly, through, uh, you know, through masturbating on a, on, a, on a regular basis. And so when you're having a lot of sex, your drive is going to be sort of working at a higher level. Uh, and uh, many women, if they are, uh, you know, are also doing the same thing, will find that the more that they uh, think about themselves sexually, they might do some poor social comparisons or they might start, you know, reading romance novels and masturbating to them and find that their interest in sex goes up as well. So I think the culture also causes us to be a little more sexualized than we might think uh, we would be, say, if we go back 60 or 70 or 200 or 300 years. So it's not, so, as, it's not as simple as just biology. Oh, it's, it's all, it, it's, it's, I like to say it's 100% biology, 
Uh, it's 100% nature, 100% nurture <laughs> and the culture. But I also think it's 100% uh, what we'll call agency. The decisions that you make and the manner in which you express your sexuality have consequences. They can either cause your sexuality to be more robust or they can dilute it or it can be atrophied to the point where it's barely, you know, living. Uh, it's in, in many ways, the, the manner in which we choose to act out sexually by ourselves, with our partners, with multiple partners, with uh, pornography, with sex toys, with, I mean, that's going to influence the way that we uh, sort of have our expectations about what our sexuality looks like. And so talk to us about your findings when you were researching for your book, Wired for Intimacy, how pornography hijacks the male brain. What actually happens in the male brain when he introduces and gets addicted to pornography? Well, I mean, you look cross-culturally, and it's no no shocker that, you know, regardless of culture, regardless of age, men like looking at naked women. Uh, so, I mean, that was the, one of the first things that I discovered, uh, that, you know, it, it, that men uh, are, are very visually, uh, on average, very visually stimulated, and that when you look at – women are visually stimulated too, but when it comes yes, to – but when it comes to issues related to sexuality – um, the, the circuits that are sort of activated in men that trigger arousal initially, especially in younger men, uh, sort of uh, post-pubertal, um, you know, kind of uh, young, young adult males, what you find is that they're very visual. They're looking at visual cues and, you know, you can use the mating strategy, you know, language if you like to say, oh, they're looking to see if the female is fertile, if she is available, if she's willing. Um, but when you look at men who are viewing pornography, under uh, you know an fMRI, what you find is there's a a circuit that's already in the brain that's kind of the natural pleasure circuit in the brain. It's called the mesolimbic system, and this system's already built into it uh, because we want things to be pleasurable that uh, have benefit. I would think uh, so. You know, eating you you eat something when you're hungry, the circuit goes on. So it, you know, it tastes good when you eat something and you're hungry. Uh, when you take some, when you get a drink. Uh, when you're thirsty, there's pleasure that you derive from it. And of course, uh, sex, when you are engaging in, the, in, in sexual activity, uh, that is it's arguing even greater amount of pleasure. And so uh, oftentimes people say, well, is this like the same circuit that crack or heroin act on? I say, well, yeah, in many ways, you know, all of these, these drugs are more sort of chemical versions of sex rather than sex acts on the drug circuit, the drugs acts on, act on the sex circuit. So ah. pornography... So pornography provides an awful lot of the visual stimulation that many men will use to increase their arousal. And so when arousal is generated, so there's one set of studies that just look at the arousal and the pleasurability of, the, of men. There's another set of studies that are looking at what's called the mirror neuron system, where you know when you watch someone doing something, the circuits in you that are involved in performing that behavior are activated. So if I were to raise my right hand up in the air, the circuit in you that would raise your right hand up in the air is also on. So it sort of mirrors it. So when people, when men view pornography, in many ways, they're mirroring it. They're vicariously engaging in the sexual act. So, so uh, I mean, that's kind of a different circuit, kind of some inferior frontal, uh, inferior frontal uh, stuff. But, uh, but I think also thirdly, it, the, the issue is more when men are really acting out to it or they include it as part of their sexual intimacy script or ritual or whatever you want to call it. So if a man's viewing pornography and then he masturbates to it, well, the orgasm sort of activates this deep mesolimbic system 
and triggers a release of endogenous opiates, which is what gives that kind of relief or release experience. So pornography, oftentimes, at least in my research, what, uh, what I'm doing is showing how it becomes a, a sort of a natural arouser uh, that is used then as a, for many men, it's used as a, either a masturbator facilitator uh, or as part of a script to get themselves are sufficiently aroused or motivated to have sex with their partner. And, and so that's what kind impact, of what I'm doing. What impact does that have on a marriage? Well, I mean, boy, you know, there, that's that's a, a very loaded question. There's a lot of <laughs> levels to that. Um, I, I would say what, what's very obvious is that the impact on of pornography, because most of the research on pornography has been done on men because they're the, the major consumers of it, is that uh, what seems to be the case is that pornography initially increases interest and arousal and motivation, but over time is actually going to cause them to be uh, much less responsive to sexually stimulating um, Behavior, so they sort of habituate to it. So, what would you know a Playboy magazine to an 18-year-old who's never you know had Playboy magazine before is not going to be or is, is going to be very arousing. But to a 25-year-old man, you know, a picture of a, a nude woman, if he's been viewing pornography for the better part of you know 10, 12 years, is is barely going to get a rise out of him. It's barely going to be enough to get him sufficiently motivated to do anything other than maybe look for more. So, so you see, there's this habituation that can occur. You see also uh, there's oftentimes decreased self, uh, decreased satisfaction with their own bodies. Many men will feel more insecure about their bodies when they view pornography. And they also uh, will begin to develop some very strange sets of expectations about sexual intimacy is supposed to, to look like. Um, you know, there's, uh, I've had a number of conversations with men who say, well, I, I like watching pornography, but if my wife were to talk to me in the same way that these porn stars talk to each other, it would kind of weird me out a little bit. So what it does is it really kind of uh, fractures the set of sexual expectations about what's wanted, uh, what's expected. And, uh, and so you're seeing more and more research now coming out suggesting that pornography, you know, what, whatever limited help it may serve in the short term, in the long term, uh, it actually it can, can do much more harm to the relationship than good. So have you? So I, I like the word hijack. That it literally hijacks his brain, and I would think that it does change the way that he looks at his wife, and so ultimately that's going to change the way he feels about his wife. Certainly, and you know, and what I, you know, the what I like to to, to say is, you know, when you think about the, the the purpose of the sexual intimacy is to actually bring the two together, to sort of unite them. And, uh, and of course, that benefits that relationship. If there are children that come out of it, certainly the children are benefited by having parents that are, have strong affection for each other. But, uh, but what happens with a lot of people is the more they engage in a lot of different novelty, they sort of lose their ability to be bound to a singular uh, individual. And so uh, I like to you know, joke, and, and we can talk about this maybe next time, but uh, you know, people will use the, the heterosexual and the homosexual and the bisexual language. I've sort of moved towards describing myself as being Donna sexual. Donna is my wife. And the more that I sort of focus, the more that I focus on her and the more that I'm faithful in my sort of my sexual intimacy with just her means that I see other women as beautiful, but I don't find them myself sexually drawn to them. Uh, so by sort of focusing all of my attention just on her and the sexual part of my life and, and, uh, 
what I find is that I've kind of, you know, been able to appreciate the beauty of other women without really being sexually attracted to them. Uh, and so I want to, you know, make the argument, is that the kind of relationship you want to have with your spouse? If it is, then don't go looking at a lot of porn. <laughs> don't go, right. you know, kind of including it as a distractor from, uh, from, your, from your spouse. And also don't have the expectation that you're going to have sex, you know, seven, eight times a week because sometimes increasing that delay between the times when you're sexually intimate will actually maximize the pleasure that you get when you finally do come back together. Because, you know, when's a meal taste really good, you know, after you've been hungry for a long time? Uh, I like the old Monty Python sketch where they got the guy who eats and eats and eats and he brings, the waiter brings the one wafer thin mint at the end. <laughs> the last thing it. you want to have is one little extra bit of chocolate uh, at the end of a meal where you're stuffed. And, and I think people just think that more sex is better. Sometimes, the less sex you have, the more robust and intense it will be. That's very interesting. Uh, I, I love the the notion of if you aim, if you aim all of your sexual energies toward your spouse, if they are who trips your trigger and that's where you mm -hmm. aim, then that's where the joy and the bonding and the pleasure is going to take place. That you don't need something else. Corey, what are your thoughts about all this? Man, I know that this, you this is, you speak a lot about well. This how is just I'm I'm just marriage. loving. I'm just a listener today, and I'm loving it because this is some great stuff. Um, the the one question is, that, isn't it neat to look at it through that scientific lens? You know, we we talk about it theoretically and maybe even theologically and right. philosophically, but to talk about it from a biopsychological standpoint is is fascinating right. to me. So, Doctor Struthers, I, I got we, I got one question though on. Sure. When you're talking about the, the impact and how porn will hijack the male brain, and I love the reference of being, for you, that what is donosexual, that just focus. <laughs> I mean, that's a great capture. I, I think that's she's going to kill phrase. me for coining that term, but, uh, but I think it gets the point. <laughs> well, as long as, you know, never mind, I'm not even going to go there. Um, it's, it, <laughs> what I want to know is from your research, because you've seen the effects of it, how much does your research play out on the elimination of it? Like a guy that has maybe gone that path and now they're like, you know, hey, I want, I want that with one woman. I want that with my spouse. Yeah. So what, well, think, how does that play out? Well, I think that, you know, it, what's important is a, I think a lot of men especially kind of want to just have the slate wiped clean. You know, they just kind of want to go back and wish they could get a do-over and get all those memories out of their system. And, and I really encourage them to say, you know, maybe that's an unrealistic expectation. And maybe what we should do is focus on, you know, what are the, the changes in the way that you can sort of, uh, you know, whether it be what you're looking at or how you're engaging in, you know, intimate moments with your spouse now. Let's focus on, on this now. Let's try to let those memories and those patterns sort of lose their power over time. You know, it's kind of like being a guy who's a weightlifter and only, you know, does curls with his right arm. Right. You know, he just sort of exercises it over and over and over again. And what happens is all the other muscles in his body begin to atrophy. Right. And so as that muscle gets stronger and those other muscles become weaker, what happens is that, well, you're going to preferentially start using that muscle more and more. And so you're just going to keep exacerbating the problem. 
So in some ways, what you want to do is you want to just stop using that muscle, you know, stop viewing the porn or stop doing, you know, whatever the unhealthy sexual behavior that you're engaging in is and start finding other healthier ways of doing it. that first time you try, you know, working with that left arm, you know, that try to do that curl or to exercise those other uh, you know, other muscles. It's going to be hard. Right. It's going to be difficult. But you have to put the time in because just as you didn't sort of max out that one, you know, muscle overnight, you have to start using those atrophied muscles and feeding them and strengthening them. And then over time, they will become the preferred muscle as well. And so sexually, it's the same thing. Uh, you, you kind of have to engage in healthy ways of doing it, even though it may not feel as good as you would work, hoping it would or expecting it to be, that over time, there are some pretty clear uh, things that you can do. Uh, you know, I like to tell a lot of the men that I work with that, you know, when when you're, you know, when you're with your wife, uh, open your eyes. You know, yeah. um, even though, you know, whether you find her attractive or not, you know, a lot of men will find themselves sort of closing their eyes and going off into fantasy land to whoever it was that they, you know, whatever porn image they're playing in their mind or whatever the last woman they they masturbated to was. Um, open your eyes and, and that sort of opening your eyes and seeing your spouse will now become sort of that exercising of that atrophied muscle. And the more you open your eyes and you look at your wife's beauty, the more you become more and more bound to her. And, and as you do that regularly, that becomes a much easier thing to do. Right. But so many men kind of close their eyes and go off to their happy place in their head that they're missing the real woman that they're with. Hmm. That's, that's that reminds great. me of a great story that Fred Stoker and Steve Arterburn included in Every Man's Battle, where this guy was addicted to pornography, and he broke the addiction, said, I'm not going to look at other women anymore, and he was kind of in that boat of he didn't necessarily find his wife to be extraordinarily attractive, but what he noticed is that the more he starved his eyes of other images, the more beautiful she became, and he, he talked about how... Yeah. One day he's sitting in the kitchen watching her cook breakfast and he said, even those fat rolls that oozed out from the bottom of her underwear, even the cellulite ripples on her thighs were wildly arousing to me. And I just thought, <laughs> wow, <laughs> yep. I, I hope that every man can catch the vision that every ounce or every inch of a woman's body can actually be very arousing to her husband if he doesn't compare her to other women constantly. So right. thanks so much for all of this wisdom and insight. Corey, I told you we would not be able to have this conversation and limit it to one show. No, so, no Bill, way. will you come back for another show? Because there's a lot more stuff I want to pick your brain about. Not a problem. I'd love to. Great. All right. Well, then I guess to our listeners that are saying, man, give me more. Well, I guess you got to come back, too. So thanks for joining us. And this has been Sexy Marriage Radio. We'd love to hear from you. What questions... Uh, have been triggered from this conversation send them to feedback at sexymarriageradio.com we would love to know what's on your brain and how it can impact your life and your married life even better so wherever you are and whatever you're doing thanks for taking time out to listen to us today we'll see you next time <laughs>